Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 75 of the Game Podcast. I'm the host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Forgotten Ancient Gottlieb. I'm I'm dying to know what this one is. Well, it's it's not as exciting as you're hoping for right now. I, I had to call out to our, our Scourge friend, the Forgotten Ancient, because we were getting ready to do this podcast and I just forgot to come, come up with a clever name this week. So <laughs> it's probably because I'm ancient and I'm forgetful and uh, I, I'm very prone to memory lapses at this point. So I had Man. to call out our buddy Forgotten Ancient and uh, you know own up to it. I'll have a better name next week. What do you want from me? I can't be perfect all the time, Jerry. I try, but it's not going to happen, man. Damn, dude. Uh, calm down. <laughs> no, I was. I, I thought it was going to be something super deep. Like we played in GP Toronto. We teamed together. It went poorly. Like maybe you were just like, oh man, like I'm I'm washed up. Oh, I've been washed know. up for a long time. It, it has nothing to do with the most recent tournament results. Don't worry about that. No, I enjoyed GP Toronto. I had a good time. I mean, granted, our results were not great, but it was a fun tournament. We got to hang out. We got to talk a lot about the future of the game podcast and, you know, get into all kinds of shenanigans. So it was a good weekend on the whole. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. I, I don't know. I'm not as upset or whatever, or beat up at our result as you might be, or Todd might be because like we started three Oh and it was, you know, it was kind of a rocky weekend overall, but I don't know. Like that, like, I feel like if we could go back and do it all again, knowing what we know now, I, I think we would kill it. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't change my deck. I would play the exact same 75. I mean, I felt like I had a fine deck. I ran poorly in a couple of matches and, you know, I didn't have time to fully flesh out one or two sideboard plans that I wish I had a little bit more time with. But other than that, I don't really have any complaints about deck selection and then a couple of judgment calls that I think I maybe leaned the wrong way. And that's it. That's That's the tournament. So that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, certainly some of that was on me and Todd. So full background information, I guess. Uh, me and Brian finally got the team together in this team constructed tournament. So one person playing standard, one playing modern, one playing legacy. Uh, we picked up Todd Anderson for our third. Todd is a person who I've been like first friends and then enemies with and then very good friends with. So we have we have a very long history, and I've never gotten to team with Todd actually. So I was like pretty excited about it, and uh, he's been playing a, a reasonable amount of Magic lately, uh, especially like compared to how much he'd been playing within like the last two years on average or whatever. So I was pretty excited. I don't know. I think I think overall like we did a, a pretty reasonable job, but yeah, there there were just some kinks that I think that we would have to work out for the future. You know, right? I'm not sure. We took advantage of the team format as much as we could have. I think that, I don't know, were we like half a week behind maybe in our deck list? Is that possible? Well, okay. So I played Legacy, Todd played Modern, and you played Standard. So I guess we can just open with talking about Standard as far as like GP Toronto is concerned. And then we can probably circle back to it with recent Magic Online results and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, sure. You know, tell me, tell me about 
your deck, I'm sure listeners of the podcast will not be shocked to learn that you played blue white control. But yeah, you no, know, t- t- everyone already knows what I played. Come on, let's let's be serious. Tell um, us, tell us all about it, man. I, I played blue white control. It's the best deck in standard. I've felt that way for a while now. I still feel that way. You know, a fairly stock composition. My main kind of you know strain from the crowd was based on a main deck forsake the worldly. You know, at the suggestion of Todd, it was fantastic. I played it over the third blink of an eye, um, and it you know paid dividends the entire weekend. It was absolutely spectacular. And my other deviations were in the sideboard, and these I feel very strongly about. And despite the fact that many other people had better results than me with this deck list, I I still kind of think I have the best sideboard plan in the slots where people are playing aggressive cards, um, things like History of Banalia. You know, Brad played Knight of Grace, which was a card I was really high on at first and have kind of scaled back from a little bit. Uh, In those slots, I played three Barals and two Walking Ballistas. And Baral was your suggestion, Jerry, and it was fantastic. I only played one Mirror, but like when Baral was on the table, the mana advantage as well as the card selection, and it's hard to express just how impactful the card selection is in the mirror you, you'll feel it as soon as you play with Baral. the fact that you always have what you need you're able to cycle through your answers obviously answers in this deck are somewhat contextual but when you have Baral in play you always have what you need uh, and it's a really powerful effect for the deck to get access to and then the mana advantage is just like pull is such an important card in control mirrors and it's so easy to set up when all of your counter magic costs one when your negates cost one and when you're able to pull for an extra pip every time i mean that's that's a pretty big difference uh in terms of your card quality versus your opponents and it's very difficult for them to kind of find a window to deal with your brawls so brawl was great ballista continued to be fine i was higher on brawl than ballista actually and i i was pretty high on ballista going into this weekend you know, people have been asking me about updates to my deck list that I played in Toronto, which I shared with our Patreons. I, I really wouldn't change anything. I thought the deck was pretty fantastic. And, you know, I had some some run bads and then I played against Black White where that matchup feels very draw dependent to me. Whoever can get on board first often snowballs the game really hard. Uh, I just got snowballed twice. And then I played Mono Red and Mono Red kind of ran over me like it does sometimes. And that was it for our tournament. I went I went four and three on the day, and that was not good enough to keep us moving on. So that's kind of my story of blue-white. I, I think that sums up my experience fairly well. Yeah, I like that. I mean, th- there are a few things that I want to note. First is that I, I just stole the Brawl sideboard plan from Guillaume. That was just something that I kept in the back of my mind ever since PT Ixalan, where I, he top-aided, I think, with Jeskai Approach. Right. And... He did the thing where he just brought it in against everyone, which was kind of what I wanted to do. But it was like it didn't really mesh with your plans for white, black and red, black. But right. And that made me sad because I, I think you were onto something. But I just honestly didn't have time to yeah. fully flesh it out. And that was one of my big failures in this tournament was just not finding the preparation time to really fully grasp the intricacies and the ramifications of the Burrell sideboard plan because I think I could have done a lot more with it and I felt like I was leaving a lot on the table by only bringing it in in certain matchups yeah and uh, standard is moving quick you know and it's like you're you have your job still and you know maybe a few months from now when you're finally settled down in Seattle or whatever like 
we're we're just going to crush it. We're going to have the best sideboard plans of all time. But right. Right. <laughs> until then, we are mere mortals. Indeed, indeed, very mortal on this weekend. But yeah, the the brawls I think are very good and are something that can potentially shift the paradigm in basically every matchup, kind of in a way where you know you're creatureless in game one and then you have like these Lyra Dawnbringers that surprise your opponent. Well, that thing doesn't work anymore, you know. Nope. But I do think that Brawl is cheap enough and Negate is so good, especially with Brawl, that that is an avenue worth pursuing in basically every matchup. Because like even if they know about it, even if you sideboard face up, it's like, what are they going to do? Like keep in their fatal bushes, please. You know, it it doesn't matter. Whatever the outcome, however your cards end up trading off, like it is good for you. I agree. And it's it's such a, I mean, that's kind of where the ballista theory comes from is that it's so impactful, especially in the mirror to be able to do anything on turn two. But you, I could see that just ripple throughout all matchups. Um, any kind of quote unquote proactive, and it's hard to define a one three as proactive, but it really is in this situation because it just accelerates every single aspect of your game plan. You know, I was also bringing it in against mono red where it was fantastic. It blocks all the two ones and just generally accelerates the play- pace of your game. You can, you can play settle the wreckage at three mana, which, you know, against mono red, that's something you could very much want to do. It could save you a tremendous amount of life. So yeah, I, th- I think this card is underplayed, underexplored, and probably the future of this archetype. Don't be surprised if you start seeing a lot more Burals and sideboards going forward. Yeah, so one thing I will note is that, well, given, given that we didn't have time to flesh out great sideboard plans and we simply had good sideboard plans, I think that once we have great sideboard plans, Brawl plus Walking Ballista will not really be a thing. Right, it's one or the other. Right, yeah, those those cards do different things, and they don't really mesh well together. It'd be like playing Baral in History of Banalia or whatever. I do think that Baral and Lyra go pretty well together, but like basically just like Baral in anything, like any sort of three, four, five mana card that has like a huge impact that you can then protect with Negate or something, I, I think is very, very good. And if Baral draws like their cast out or their unlicensed disintegration and clears the way for Lyra, even better. Yep, I'm with you. I I think it's uh, it's like I said, it's the future of this archetype, and and people will get on board very soon. I have a feeling. Yeah. So Brad played three Knight of Grace, as you mentioned, and three History of Benalia, which I think makes more sense than just playing four histories. Right. Right. And it, it's great countering the History of Benalia plan as well. Like your Knight of Grace shuts down their their wimpy looking tutus, um, so it furthers that kind of if you're bringing in. If you're in the mirror and you're already bringing in your histories, having the Knight of Grace really gives you the edge there. Correct. So I am a bit concerned that Brawl, while good, may be weak to Brad's sideboard plan. Well, I'll say that you can generally brick wall the Knight of Grace pretty hard with Brawl. Um, Obviously, there's a point where that breaks down. But if you're on the play, you know you can proactively fight against history of Benalia. And a lot of times history of Benalia is good in the mirror because resources are so limited and you don't have a ton of hard counters. And, you know, each counter that history of Benalia takes away is something you can't fight over Teferi with. But once you get to card selection with Baral, once you're building your sideboard in contemplation of Baral, and we did a little bit of that, we got to play a unwind in our sideboard, which was super exciting. Was that good? No, nope, it didn't do anything. I mean, the, the one time I cast it, it was it was a negate, and it didn't have to be any more than that. But 
we already had four negates. So it was essentially the fifth copy of negate, which I was pretty happy with expecting to play a lot of mirrors. I didn't. I only played one blue white deck and it was more of an approach style deck. But had I played a lot of mirrors, I'm sure I would have been very happy to have rewind. And again, it's something where we didn't have time to really extrapolate the uses of rewind because we talked a little bit last week about being able to set up settles. And if you have Baral's in against every matchup, Obviously, it's having a lot more impact when it's actually netting you mana. So I think it was a victim of not having explored plans fully enough. So it was pretty underwhelming for me, but it does still have potential. I mean, I, I didn't hate it. It was it was completely fine. Yeah, I think Brawl Unwind could be good, but you need something else to spend the mana on. You need the Glimmer of Geniuses, Hieroglyphic Illuminations, maybe Commit Memory, maybe Blink of an Eye, you know? And you need to actually be building your deck in such a way to maximize it if you actually want to play Unwind. Exactly. And and there's certainly enough cards where you can do that. You just have to think a little bit harder than we did about what your Bural packages look like. Um, and as this format goes on, people will start to suss that out. Maybe we will start to suss it out. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, the, the PT is in a week and a half, basically. Maybe a week from when this actually goes live. So... Pretty soon, we're going to have all the technology. Yeah, and I, I talked to a lot of people on the weekend just out there, you know, catching up with friends who I haven't talked to in a while. And there's a lot of people who are high on this archetype, which, you know, if you look at the top four, you can see two of the top four teams picked up blue-white. They're not alone. There, there's definitely a bunch of people who have an eye on this archetype for the Pro Tour. Right. And I think, personally, that it is very, very easily exploitable. I think so too. I mean, there's certainly ways to build around it, but people haven't done it yet. So we'll see if they get there. Well, I think kind of the issue is that like white black is mostly a natural predator, but white black is a little bit weaker in general than red black. I don't know if I'd go as far as a natural predator. I mean, I I, I think I do think the matchup is positive for the white black side, but only slightly so in my view. And and maybe I'm understating the difficulty of the matchup and maybe, you know, I haven't played with people with effective sideboard plans. I think you can make your sideboard plans real effective. A card that I'm starting to hear discussed, which I know will probably make you cringe and usually makes me cringe is Lost Legacy. But no, Lost Legacy naming Teferi. No, Lost Legacy naming Teferi is going to be backbreaking for this deck. No, it's not. No, yes, it's it is. Not. You're so dependent on Teferi. You really are. You should have a sideboard plan that makes you not as dependent on Teferi. Right, but people really don't right now, unless you're counting History of Benelia as that, but that doesn't seem good against the type of decks that would have Lost Legacy. So you're, oh you're right that you can account for it. Look, I'm not arguing with that, but right now deck lists are not accounting for it. They'll have to do so going forward if that becomes a piece of technology that people pick up. That's a point of aggression you can seize on, and it's only going to exist for a second where it's correct to be playing Lost Legacy, which is on its face a very bad card, and I get that i really do but that doesn't mean it doesn't have a spot where it could potentially shine okay so when i say that blue white control is exploitable i do not mean by boarding in cranial extraction i mean that they have a difficult time dealing with things like heart of kirin karn toolcraft exemplar like you have these fast starts with hard to kill permanence and then post-board, White Black specifically has Duress, Bloodfast, and Disenchants to break up castouts on their problematic permanents. If if they had a way, a clean way to answer Search for Escanta, and maybe this involves like playing some Field of Ruins or Scavenger Grounds or whatever, then I think that they just they basically just completely dominate you in the matchup. 
well, it's hard to say. I mean, as as it stands now, you still have access to your search for Ascontas. Um, they're not doing anything to disable that part of your engine. So I, I think the matchup is very close right now, even in post-board games, as you describe it, as long as you have plans for all those things. And, you know, as the decks have adapted Sorcerer's Spyglass, which is a nice answer to multiple of those cards you mentioned. Again, White Black has the capability to answer that card, but it's this, it's this whole dance. It's this back and forth, and whoever's answers line up better is probably going to have the edge in that matchup. And I've I've seen it go both ways many times. I don't know. This might be one of the situations where like I would win the matchup on both sides, but I I don't care about that. I care about the truth. And the truth is if someone who is very competent and capable at both sides of the matchup, like if, if like two players who understand things and are playing at their peak are playing the matchup, I think white black's a huge favorite. Okay. Interesting. I mean, that's, that's really hard to suss out because I haven't played it sitting down against a super competent opponent. I have a range of opponents, right? And when I've played against a competent opponent, I've I've felt that sometimes, but other times it feels like, oh, I have plenty of room to outplay them. So I I guess it's hard to me to, to really spot the kind of max edge on both sides and where it mashes against each other and evens out to. But you could be right. It could be a sizable favorite for white black. Certainly the pieces line up very well, the way you've described it. Lots of enchantment removal and proactive threats that are difficult to deal with. So this is this is just all I want to do is I want to find the truth. And then, like you said, you've played against a range of opponents and you will play against a range of opponents throughout the tournament, but you should figure out what the truth is. And then if you play against someone who, you know, maybe maybe the matchup's like, 60 40 in white black's favor or whatever i I think it's higher than that but like let's say like the actual truth is 60 40 if you play against someone at the like middle or lower end of that range like maybe now you're the 60 40 favorite right or maybe maybe it's even greater than that because the onus is kind of on the white black player to have a fundamental understanding of like how to approach the blue white matchup and like it it's on them to make sure that your cards suck basically like they don't they don't give you like a juicy counterspell target or a good settle the wreckage turn. They don't let you cast Glimmer of Genius or whatever on four mana, you know, and I know all the blue white decks are different. Like they don't even all necessarily have glimmer, but like that that sort of thing, right? Uh then that that's just a bonus. It's just like, all right, I have this this blue white deck. It might be bad against white black, but it's good against everything else. And then maybe you play a tournament, you beat all the white black decks anyway. It doesn't matter. Like you should find the truth, not like, oh, how is my deck against a wide range of opponents? Because you're never going to win the tournament that way. Let me ask this question. Is the truth actually optimal play versus optimal play? Because if you think about truth as it applies in something like poker, where truth exists in ranges, right? And and ranges mushed against ranges come up with the optimal play, the optimal result. So all of these ranges, like you said, are going to exist throughout the context of a tournament. So isn't the truth an application of all those ranges against each other? Do you see what I'm saying? Like the, sure, the optimal sure. play is not necessarily the correct result. Okay, so say this is a wild tangent, but I think it's a good one. So I'm, I'm going to keep going, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, so say I was playing blue-white in a tournament and white-black was popular. Obviously, I would want to configure my deck in such a way to have a good chance against that deck, but I wouldn't go out of my way to, you know, play all the spy glasses and all the disenchants and maybe main deck some of that stuff and whatever. And maybe 
some of that stuff ends up being correct because it the, of like the splash damage against the rest of the metagame, right? You know, like there is enough red black that playing one spyglass main makes sense. And like a lot of the Japanese players have been doing that on Magic Online. Right. You're not going out of your way to specifically target white black. And the, the same could be said for white black, right? Where it's like they want to play disenchants, but it's not just for blue white. It's not just for like search and cast out. It's also for mirror matches. It's also for red black to some extent. And they want to have access to duress and Bloodfast because those are just like the KOs against control. And I don't think it is that big of an ask for them to play with those cards. And if Bloodfast gets active, it's lights out. You have no shot. If it if it happens like anytime reasonably early and they make their land drops and they have black mana, right? I want to fight that contention, but go ahead. I know, I know you're mostly right. You're mostly right. I mean, in order to beat Bloodfast, you have to be attacking them. And this version of Blue White very specifically does not do that. And I, I will of, say that I beat a lot of Bloodfast when I have Knight of Grace in my sideboard. And yeah, you know, maybe yeah, Brad accounted for that. So. Of course. Right. And but like with like Baral, Lyra and Walking Ballista, you don't right. really have that capability. Like every yeah. every Baral Ting is they're down half a card and that's good. That's like an added bonus of Baral, but you're not actually punishing their Bloodfast and making them bad. Correct. Right. So in, in if like. Everything is true, and maybe Brad's sideboard, you know, switches the paradigm again, and maybe Bloodfast is actually bad, and you need things like Treasure Map or whatever instead, then things change. But for right now, let's say it's a week ago, maybe at Birmingham or whatever, and it's like Leo against someone else playing White Black, like me or TBS or whatever. Like, I, I think we just annihilate him. Okay. That could be very true. You know, it's nice. It's nice. There's room for all these things to keep shifting over time. There's a lot of really good proactive strategies you can take on in, in all of these decks in white, black and yeah. white, blue. They can all do different things. And that's really no, cool. Absolutely. And like, see, that's the thing is like part of the truth is the range of truths, right? Yep. Okay. If I have blood fast and they don't have a way to pressure me, it's lights out. But if they suddenly have like Knight of Grace into history, Benalia, and I took out all my removal and I just have these stupid duresses, like, yeah, I'm going to get beat up. Right. But if people don't have that, then, you know, your, your deck is just set up beautifully against them. And for, for someone to say like white, black is good against blue, white. It's, it is like, for me, it is like shorthand for the way the decks are built currently. Or if there is something specific that I can do differently to be good against blue, white, I will say like white, black is good against blue, white. As long as you have blood fast. Right. Yep. So, the, the truth, I think, for right now is white-black beats blue-white very badly, but tomorrow that could be completely different. Right, right. Okay, I'm with you then. And, you know, once once blue-white has Knight of Grace and History of Benalia, then, you know, I would have to think for 30 minutes and I would come up with a better sideboard plan against that stuff, right? It's just like that's how it goes. And then that's how you just end up going super deep and leveling yourself and all the things that yourself out of the tournament, (laughs) right? The things that you thought mattered, like you just take them way too far. Right. And it's just like, Oh, if I had just not changed my deck, it would have been better. Right. Because you just got too far ahead. It's like, well, everyone has the Knights. So now like the white black decks are going to have seal away or whatever. So then I can't play the Knights anymore. So I have to go back to walking ballista and then you just die to the person who has blood fast in their deck still. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's that's why my magic's great, right? You got to find that exact spot to be at. And yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I've historically been pretty bad at that. 
I know exactly where the levels are. It's just like pinpointing it for that one week is so tough because part of like assuming that everyone else is super smart and following all the trends and is rapidly updating their decks is like, that's a reflection of me being stupid. I I feel you. I've made the same mistake many times. And you know, this is an argument in favor of proactivity because you can mess up pretty bad. And if you're still going scrap heap scrounger into heart of Kirin, you can cover for a lot of your mess ups. But like you said, if you're with white blue control and you just don't have the right pieces to pressure blood fast, you can't really do anything. You know, if it resolves, you've, you've conceded the game essentially. So, you know, that's why a lot of people lean towards proactivity. Right. And I, I hate the card disallow. Absolutely hate it. Elaborate a little more on your hatred for disallow. Just three mana counter spells are not your jam. It's like, it's hard to cast. There's very little upside. A lot of the time you're countering things that are just cheaper than your card, or like they play a two mana card or a three mana card on the play. And, your disallow is still not even online yet. You could not have double blue. You could like peel your third land and have it ETB tapped. It's just like so much has to go right for that card to line up. And I just hate it. But do you, I mean, do you hate it in the extent that you're looking for something new or do you view it as a necessary evil if this archetype is going to find success? Oh no. Like if you're playing blue eye control, you obviously need disallow in your deck. I'm just saying that like, Having to play, play those blue eye control. Yeah, having to play those type of answers is not where I want to be. Like it, it just seems like so much has to go right for you to just not even get buried in the early game, basically. Well, I, I guess I have the sense that this deck is something special. It's got some catch-up mechanisms that decks like this have lacked for a little while. Absolutely. Um, but, but your points are valid. A disallow is a card that, you know, has its flaws. Three mana counter spells have historically had their flaws. We're, we're usually pretty unhappy with them. We look for ways to get around it. That's why you see so many Essence Scatters and Negates floating around, even though they're super contextual. But Now, Essence Scatter and Negate, those are cards I can get behind. Right. I know that's right up your alley. Yep. What about Syncopate? How do you feel about Syncopate these days? I mostly hate it, but it is very yeah. good with Brawl. Yeah. yeah, it gets great with Brawl. That one mana counter spell is sweet. Oh, yeah. So, uh, rant over, I think. Yeah, I think we've probably beaten people to death with the blue-white control deck. I still remain very high on it, but you know, there's a lot of other interesting stuff to talk about here, so so we can go elsewhere. But I, I do want to tell you that the eventual winner of this tournament, Morgan McLaughlin, messaged me on Twitter today and mentioned that he just started listening to the game podcast about, about a month ago, and now he's a GP champion. I'm not saying the two are definitely... <laughs> related, but I don't know, man. We did a deep dive on white-black vehicles. He picks up white-black vehicles, and he wins the GP. Just saying. So congrats, Morgan. It's always nice to hear a listener finding some success in taking down the GP. No, that is awesome. Lucas Ciao just became a patron yesterday, I think. So Much love to those guys. Congrats on the win. Yeah. No, it is is pretty sweet, and it's weird, too, because, like, white-black vehicles and... It just seems like it is, it's kind of getting worse and worse, mostly because of like the red black matchup. But like Morgan has Ixalan's binding, which could just be the truth. It could be the answer that you need. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of neat changes here. And yeah, just like a kind of strange removal split and everything. But yeah, it is, it is nice that when, you know, like even last week, I wrote an article about white black vehicles, right? And it's like, I still mostly believe in this deck. Like, if, if the Pro Tour were tomorrow, I'm not sure what I would play, honestly, but it's like, well, I have a lot of experience with white-black, and I know what problems it has and everything, but then, like, you know, 
uh, Fournier wins the PTQ, and I, I think he just like immediately put the deck down and like didn't play it in Toronto or anything. But like Morgan won the tournament, right? Like, yeah, team tournament. Obviously, we have to temper the temper the results a little bit, but uh, of course, you know, still worth noting. Absolutely, yeah. So. I don't know. It is it is very weird for me to say, like, I'm pretty sure this deck is getting worse and might just be a worse red black or whatever, as long as red black has more things to fight blue white control. But then it just keeps doing well. So it's like, eh, maybe it's still good. Yeah, could be. Mysteries. I need to play more. I've been I've been playing with Bruce too much, trying to cross things off the list for the PT. Anything exciting? And I mean I know we can't really go too deep into it, but do you have do you have sparks of hope? Just tell us that. Uh, I don't know. There are some, there are some things that I still need to work out, but nothing where I'm like, Ooh, this is like really promising. And you know, okay, well, we'll see what the PT brings. If, if I have uh, like heart of Kieran and glory bringer in my deck at the pro tour, don't be surprised. I I won't be mad at you. I think that's totally defensible. Okay. So that was, that was our standard experience. Todd Anderson was our modern person playing humans. Uh, Fairly stock-ish list. He wasn't doing anything too exciting. Uh, three Thalia, 19 land, two Restoration Angel. I believe the exact same main deck that Kenji Sumura won the mocks with. Great. And then we talked about the sideboard a little bit. I really like two to three Gutshot, two Dismember. Love, and love Gutshot. I, dude, I love Gutshot too. Uh, heads up, Marshall Arthurs won the SCG this weekend with Marty Pyromancer. I think he went 16-0-2. That's uh, that's quite the showing. Yeah, he he just smashed the entire tournament. Uh, he had some weird stuff in his deck, like his sideboard had Ensnaring Bridge, which was a card I considered for the Pro Tour. And like, I don't know, I I feel like I should have been playing it maybe like two tournaments ago, I guess. Uh, but he said it was great for him, just like crushes boggles, good against humans, and just like a lot of random splash damage and stuff. Like you're you're operating with like a very low amount of cards in your hand at all times. So it kind of makes sense that it would be good in the deck, like good in the sideboard. And he had like a basic planes, a bunch of Campbell's, a bunch of wear tears. Uh, But the thing that I really want is just two main deck gut shots in that deck. As long as like humans and affinity are big decks. Right. I mean, you can't really, it's such an innocuous card on its face, but you can't understate the tempo advantage that having gut shot in your deck gets you. It's something that I've even played in Tron to a lot of success. I, I, I love it in Tron. I think it's great. And that's that's the reason Todd got the second gut shot. Mm-hmm. I, I had a copy. I brought my Tron deck with me to Toronto. Todd needed a gut shot, and I had one in my Tron deck for him. Yeah, and he was just like, he was very confused, but he was just like, I'll take it, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, he had uh, the Reclamation Sages, Katakis, Oriok Champions, Static Aster Sin Collectors, basically did not have the Dire Fleet Daredevils that most people play, which... That card does not seem very good to me. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know the humans matchups well enough to know where that's really a game breaking card. All the other cards in the sideboard seem way more impactful to me. Oh yeah, where Dire Fleet Daredevil is nice, but it's just kind of like you know getting a little value. the The body doesn't seem super relevant in modern. Maybe I'm understating, you know, how big the body is and how much first strike matters, but. I don't know. It it does seem like there are more powerful options in the sideboard. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it is it is graveyard hate. It has the potential to like take out a conflagrate from dredge or a passing flames from storm. You know, sure, but that's, sure. That's just mostly like super cute rather than functionally good. Agreed. 
Yeah, Todd played humans at uh, one of the team SCGs and went something like 10 and 5, which is not all that awe-inspiring, you know, especially since it's Todd and he's definitely like, you know, top 1% caliber of player in the room. But like humans is the quote-unquote best deck, right? Like what else should you play in a team tournament when presumably people are going to be playing good decks, right? But it's like, I've been thinking this for a while and at some point I just have to like put this into practice. I got to find some people who are willing to do this with me. But like, I think the key to success in team tournaments is just doing weird stuff. Yeah. We talked about this a lot this weekend, like next team tournament I show up with the modern seats going to be taking turns. We'll play like, I don't know, Pumler in the standard seat. Not weird, bad stuff. No, no, we're just nonsense stuff. We're going to go dredge in legacy, or maybe we'll go like, I don't know, oops, all spells, something just absolutely insane. That That's the key to success in these team tournaments. I'm convinced. Although no, this is a very dude. stock top four, like there's no <laughs> nonsense whatsoever. So there, there aren't nonsense deck choices, but there are kind of nonsense card choices, right? Like, okay, these people are doing kind of weird things. So like Morgan's white black deck has Ixalan binding, the humans deck, granted, is fairly stock. But look at Lucas CL's four-color deck. Yeah, this deck seems sweet. A two the slaughter. Haven't seen many of those in Legacy. He has three Force of Wills in the sideboard, a Pyroblast mm-hmm. main. Like it's very clear that he is targeting like a very specific metagame, right? And yeah, he wants to beat the fair. Right. And I, I think that that is reasonable for the most part, but it's like I still played against like you know, storm and turbo depths and stuff like that, where it's like, I would be very concerned registering like this sort of deck. You got to have a lot of faith in your post board plans. Cause you're basically scooping those game ones in a lot of spots. So yeah, but it's like to the slaughter main deck pyroblast only one force of will a collective brutality, a Liliana, the last hope, like people were not going to play around these cards. And like, you know, I'm, I'm certainly curious to see, how much of an edge he got from that aside from that stuff like the sideboard is all fairly normal stuff but then like another top four team jennifer cross's team like she's playing red black kind of normal ish like a a very mid-range to like heavy controlling bill but she has the bowmats and glint sleeve siphoner in the sideboard right she can go hard against control with those cards definitely yeah, so it's like, that's kind of a strange thing, right? It's like, you don't even, Siphoner, certainly you just like don't see in the deck very often at all, but like, you, you just generally don't expect to see like Bowmat Couriers and Glensleaf Siphoners, period. It's like most people have cut them just because of Chain Whirler and they don't strike you as like very effective sideboard cards, right? I wonder if part of it is that you just feel safe in reducing the potential range of decks your opponents can be on. Because, I mean, we talked about this a little bit in kind of, contravention of any team ever ending up on something like taking turns is that there's three people there just kind of logic from three people should kind of force your teammates towards the best decks right you think three people bouncing ideas off of each other will just be like okay this is definitely where you should end up i think in in modern we saw a lot of that in practice i know todd played the mirror a bunch i don't know did you play a lot of different legacy archetypes or were you pretty uh locked in with a lot of the the value death right shaman decks well, I didn't play any games because it's not super convenient for me to play games. Like, I don't have the legacy cards on Magic Online and the cards that I have. It's like I have everything except for the dual lands, basically. So, like, I'm sure I could cobble some stuff together and play some local tournaments. But, like, I don't know how much that actually helps me because I don't know how much a local Seattle metagame is going to be representative of, like, the GP Toronto metagame, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, how much does actually playing games really help me? And 
I don't know. I hadn't played Legacy since Leovold has been printed, but I do think that I am pretty good at identifying what matters in blue mirrors and being able to exploit that. And like my record against non-miracle blue decks was very good. And do you think you maybe underestimated the miracles decks or was it just, you know, yeah, I small mean, that, sample size? No, that's that's one of those things where it's like, oh, they they just can't play that deck because they just lose to the, the K command him to Turok decks. Right. But they did. Well, yeah. I mean, I it, it's just weird because I don't know, you're you're talking about a situation where, you know, you have three players and it's like, oh, well, like, you know, this is the best deck, this four color deck, like the check pile thing. And you can't play Miracles because you have such a bad matchup, right? But it's like, what if this person only owns Miracles cards? Or what if they've been playing Miracles for 10 years or whatever? You know, right. like they're just going to play it. And there are going to be a lot of teams like that. So for as much as you would think like, oh, three players working together, they're going to force like someone to play like the best deck or whatever. And it's like, well, no, Robert Smith top aided with elves. Yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, there's a lot of weird factors at play when it comes to legacy, right? There's card availability. There's just the absurd cost of reserve list cards. Like, even if we determined that Elves was the the only place to be for legacy this weekend, I wasn't going and dropping twenty four hundred dollars on cradles for this one tournament. Like, that just doesn't make sense anymore. Right. So that there is some weird tension on the format, certainly. Yeah. So I, I think people are potentially giving up a lot of equity by doing things like playing humans because. The, like, even if not everyone plays humans, certainly people are going to be like, yo, make sure you have a good humans matchup, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just straight up. You're just walking into everyone's trap. So this is not just from me playing like team constructed tournaments because not a lot of those have existed. But this has also come from me playing like the Magic Online Championship, the play, the SCG Players Championship, Worlds, mm, like these... Good parallel, yeah. Yeah, like these these formats where there are, there's like a very small player base and it should be like, oh, well, literally everyone is going to show up with Teamer, right? Because like that's the best deck. And it's like, well, no, if that's the case, like it's so easily gameable. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it won't be 100% Teamer. That's It's just not going to happen. So... And also, like, Teamer's just going to have a target on its head, straight up. Right. Yeah, and and you could be right about humans this weekend. I I think maybe, you know, we're talking about maybe doing a full modern episode next week. So maybe I'll I'll save this discussion. But we might have seen a turning point in the format this past weekend with the SCG. You know, Teferi is starting to make his presence felt. And I, I think things might be turning against humans now, where... If it still holds the mantle of best deck, which I would have said going into this tournament, it may not now, or if it still does, it it may not very longer. I mean, there's a lot of Jeskai, a a reasonable amount of Mardu. Todd played against Lantern, which is just a nightmare, you know, Mm -hmm. and even like the Mardu decks have Ensnaring Bridge in the sideboard, right? It's like humans is like it has weaknesses. They're starting to be exploited. It is time to get off that deck. Not I think so. Not just in team tournaments, but also in real life too. And certainly on magic online, like if the, there was a modern deck list dump that went up today and there were a lot of different blue control decks. Yeah. Well, they just got a really powerful tool. Um, and I, I see no reasons why things won't trend in that direction. So you have to find the next step now and be able to exploit the blue control decks while still maintaining that decent humans matchup for the people that are lagging behind and still dealing with this tremendous, tremendous diversity. That is the modern field at the same time. So a uh, new puzzle to solve for us. Yeah, so 
Uh, modern Todd seems just pretty frustrated by playing against like ensnaring bridge and like these mirror matches and just like, it didn't look like he had an edge anywhere. Yeah. A lot of tough matchups. So yeah. What, what I ideally would want to do is not play taking turns because it's not like, Oh, they don't have their anti taking turns card. So I win, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. Play whatever Storm or Tron or Affinity is well positioned, like whatever people don't have, whatever they're cutting from their sideboard in order to fit in more removal spells to beat humans or whatever, you know, like you just got to find that one thing that's kind of undervalued or under-respected and uh, just trounce people with it. Time for Karn again. Yes. No. That's exactly what I wanted Ooh, to hear. Wait, Thank you, Jerry, for Karn, confirming. Karn Cyanoverza? No, Karn Liberated, the only Karn. I don't know, man. If people the are playing a Karn. lot of blue-eye control, go nuts. Right. Let's hope so. Let's hope things get to that point. I'm not convinced they're there yet, but I would love things to get back. It's there. close. It's getting there. I mean, yep. Mardu wants... As, as the fairy shows up more and more, I mean, that's the kind of deck that Karn loves to prey on. So Yeah, Mardu won the open. He had three Blood Moons main, no Karn disruption in the sideboard. Okay, that's what I like to hear. And Jeskai has one field of ruin, like... Dude, you're good. You're good. You can go back to Karnan, folks, I think. Nice. Exactly what I wanted to hear. Right in time, now that we have the Karn emote over in the game podcast discard, oh, I can spam yeah. that all the time. So yeah. that's exactly what I want to hear. The, the top eight from Louisville is your actual dream. First place, Marty Pyromancer. Second place, Gre- Jeskai Control. Third place, Boggles. Fourth place, Jeskai Control. Fifth place, Humans. Sixth place, Storm. Okay, fine. Uh, seventh and eighth place are both Jund. So Karn wins. Yeah. Karn wins easily. Yeah, very Excellent. easily. Well, that sounds pretty appealing. Might be time for another modern tournament soon. Uh, the highest finishing Tron deck is 23rd. I think if you go to the classic, though, I, I think there's actually a ton of Tron. I mean, I, I don't know how we weigh classics versus opens, especially where it's the same format. But but I do think there was a, a bunch of Tron floating around this. It's weird to me, too, because presumably the classic are the people playing the same decks that they didn't they do the open with. Yeah, I, I know. It's problematic because it, it's hard to evaluate like what the cast offs from the first tournament who their deck wasn't well enough positioned to make day two. And this isn't to like slight anyone who didn't make day two. That's not my intention. But I'm just saying it, it's a weird, weird situation where the kind of failures of day one are comprising the field of day two. Um, but Tron killed it there, so good for you, Tron. Yeah, Tron with an Ursus factory. Love it. Yeah, that's a weird one. And I don't know if I'm on board with that yet, but interesting. Way to find those interesting colorless lands. Hell yeah. Uh, so Legacy. What do you have to say about Legacy? I'm really curious to hear your take. Now, you said it was, it's been, what, a year since you've been involved with Legacy in any kind of I follow it. endeavor? Okay. I always follow it. Leovold is an interesting magic card. Uh, it does a lot of weird things to the blue matchups. And Delver has just gone strictly off the Grixis deep end. And somehow Noah Walker keeps winning with the deck. I have no idea how. Crushes it over and over. Over and over again. Delver, I, I just never really see like a Delver run away with an early game landslide, you know, it always seems like these decks end up playing like kind of a longer game. And then they either stick a five, five or a bunch of one, one young pyromancer tokens or a true name nemesis. Like they slide in something that their opponent can't deal with. And they just kind of ride that, which I think is like a pretty horrendous plan. So I don't know. 
Well, I mean, I think Delver is like doing that whole lightning rod thing, right? Where it's enabling them to sneak something through and also getting that chip damage in where every young pyromancer threatens lethal now in three turns and lightning bolts off the top become scary. Whereas if Delver isn't present, none of those things matter. I mean, Delver, regardless of any contextual flaws with Delver, whether it does or does not line up against the rest of the format, it does close the game very quickly and always will um, with very minimal investment. And that kind of ripples throughout the rest of the game. Leading on turn one Delver, I mean, I don't have to tell you this. You've played enough Legacy. Games with turn one Delver fundamentally change a bunch of matchups. Something like Storm, if you have turn one Delver, you're playing a completely different game than you were previously. Yeah. Um, And I think that's what it's still trying to do. But the question is, why? Why does it feel obligated to do that when so much of the format is about these long, grindy games at this point? Yeah. So it's also weird just fundamentally to have Delver and Death Rates death rate shaman in the same deck where it's like death right is this thing that gives you like a lot of advantage the longer the game goes and delver mm-hmm. is this thing that just like wants you to close the game as quickly as possible it's just like i i find it very hard to believe that this is like the actual optimal configuration for either a delver deck or a death rate shaman deck i want to see stifle in these decks like you're talking about running away with the game early these decks don't give themselves any opportunity to do so. Like, why, why are we convinced that you can't stifle successfully in this format? I mean, your deck, I remarked that I thought it had a very high CMC for Legacy. You disagreed with me. But in general, you know, this format is very much focused around one mana, two mana spells. And you had a lot of two mana spells and some three mana spells. And if you look at like Lucas's deck, you know, there's a bunch of three mana spells there. So why isn't anyone attempting to do mana denial with their Delver decks? I don't really have an answer for that. I, I think it could very well be a very strong position to take against all these four color decks. I mean, part of the problem is Deathrite Shaman, because if a Deathrite Shaman lives and you're on this plan, you just look silly. Yep. But, you know, you can account for that. You play enough removal for Deathrite and and you can answer it effectively. Um, and, and still present those stifles that are so difficult for so many decks to deal with right now. Yeah, the the main issue is that Teamer Delver was, I, I mean, aside from any like Team America shenanigans, like Teamer Delver was the, the best stifle deck, right? And mm-hmm. it was all about gaining this sort of like tempo slash virtual card advantage off of destroying your lands and stopping your mana production and having things like days and spell pierce for when you finally started casting spells that you just died with six cards in your hand every game, you know? Right. And then people over the course of many years eventually figured out how to like tune their decks to be better and better against team or Delver. And that deck basically didn't get anything new for multiple years also. And yeah, certainly death rate shaman is a big part of that too, where it's like you lead on that and a lot of their game plan just doesn't work and they don't have a good backup plan. And the Grixis Delver decks like kind of kind of do have this backup plan where it's like they can go a little bit bigger and they have some better spot removal and post board, you know, they can become this pseudo control deck or whatever. And it's just like, I I don't get it. I don't understand why they're not just starting with this control control shell. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think I don't remember who said it, but someone who is like a large proponent of team or Delver was just like, if your opponent ever gets to do anything, you lose. Like you just have to stop absolutely everything they do and then you win the game and that's how all your games play out. That's always stuck with me. I thought that was really interesting. But now that you've played some Legacy again, I have to ask kind of the the hot topic in Legacy at the moment is Deathrite Shaman and whether it belongs in the format going forward. Have you have you formed an opinion on whether Deathrite Shaman is good for Legacy over the course of this, you know, small sample size? 
Well, it's it's not just a small sample size because, like I said, I've been paying attention and I okay. I played with Death Ray Shaman a bunch. And sure, especially now that Legacy is at the point where it's like, oh, the Delver decks have Death Ray Shaman and the Control decks have Death Ray Shaman and blah blah blah. Like the games are so much different when one player has Death Ray Shaman compared to when they yeah. don't, and it is just pretty absurd to me. And there's already like not a super high cost to playing multiple colors in your deck, but now it's just kind of trivial. And there is some non-basic land hate, but like, you know, if, if miracles wants to play like blood moon or uh, back to basics or whatever, they can certainly do that, but it's by no means a lock. It's not a hard punish. Like there's still abrupt decay and hydro blast and stuff like that out there that serves as anti hate. And Hmm. I don't know. I, I also think the question of like, oh, should Death Ray Shaman be banned is kind of silly because like obviously Brainstorm is the card that should be banned, assuming you're trying to make like the format healthy or whatever and make it so it's not 60% blue decks or whatever it is, right? But yeah. the rationale yeah. for not banning Brainstorm is that like, you know, Brainstorm Fetchland is sweet and people like it and that's kind of Legacy's identity. So like, hey, we'll we'll just keep it, you know? And if that's the case, like where where's that line drawn? Is Death Ray Shaman now just part of Legacy? And I, I think like as long as people like casting Brainstorm and they like casting Death Ray Shaman, who cares? That's a fair stance on it. I guess I don't like casting Death Ray Shaman, so that's where I kind of fall. Have on you things. tried? Like, I don't know. I guess no, I have. I I absolutely have. And look, like you said, there's there's problems in where one person has Death Ray Shaman and the other doesn't. I also feel like decks are lacking in identity now. To some extent, all these decks feel very, very similar to me. And that's really my biggest rub. Because while there previously were different flavors of blue decks, a lot of them are starting to mush together. And there's still some outliers in things like, you know, maybe Show and Tell or Miracles that aren't going the Death Ray Shaman right route. But all of these Death Ray Shaman decks really blend together into this mush for me. I think it's more powerful than anything else you can be doing in Legacy. And I just feel like the format gets a lot more interesting without it present. Am I right? I don't know. I mean, we'd have to see where things go at this point. And maybe it's a field of all miracles and things. everything's terrible. Who knows? But I think I'm just ready for a shakeup. I feel like I've been playing this style of Legacy for longer than I've played any other style of Legacy, if that makes sense. I think there's been a lot of, you know, changes over time that come with new prints and, you know, new archetypes developing. And it, it's it's generally been exciting. But for the last year or so, I feel like Legacy has felt very stale to me. No, that's legit. And I totally agree with you, uh, especially on the part of like all the blue decks just kind of blending together. Like there there is a good distinction between Grixis Delver and uh, Grixis splashing death, right? Uh, essentially check pile. Right. But mm-hmm. like miracles is a terminus deck. And I think that terminus just mostly has no place in the format. And I think that again, Delver is probably worse than just being a control deck. And then it's just like, all right, yeah, play death, right? Shaman brainstorm and some stuff like right. whatever you want. It doesn't matter because you have death, right? Shaman and brainstorm. Yep, that's and that's my biggest problem. And there's color pie concerns for me too. I mean, I of course I don't know that this is a great thing for blue decks to have access to. Like, it, it should be higher cost than it is, you know, than getting your mini planeswalker. Blue decks that had to play things like Noble Hierarch that was a cost. Yeah. That was 
kind of pulled them in a different direction. And I was cool with that. I thought blue no like blue decks with noble hierarch were mostly interesting in legacy. I actually think the period where noble hierarch was good in legacy was one of the most interesting periods in legacy's history. But I- I'm ready for a shakeup. I know a lot of people feel differently. I guess I guess I don't care where things fall i ultimately don't play legacy enough to be super invested and you know i i can find a deck i enjoy playing under this death right shaman meta i just think there's a more interesting format sitting out there unexplored that doesn't have death right shaman in it that is definitely legit uh again i think it all comes down to like what would produce the the highest amount of net happiness Yep. And I don't know the answer to that. So it, it depends. I, the legacy community is hard to get a beat on at this point because there's just not a lot of tournament action at this point. Like tournaments have gone way down. There's not the weekly Star City series. It only happens once in a while. So it's hard to get a sense of where things lie. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I'm I'm in the camp specifically for legacy where even if something is busted or the format is not completely balanced or whatever, it, it doesn't really matter as long as people are having fun. I think that's a good approach. It doesn't need to be a super serious tournament format, although it will be shortly as there's a pro tour that's going to play Legacy. So that's kind of kind of a weird uh, tension on this otherwise, you know, hands off format. Right. And I'm, I'm the Legacy person on our team, so I think I have to deal with it. Yes, you do. Anyway, as far as uh, Toronto, I don't know. I played Sultai, not four color. I don't know. I like Kolagon's command. I've certainly cast a lot of Kolagon's commands in my day. I just felt like I could get by without it. And you were already bemoaning my my high mana curve that was not high at all, especially compared to a lot of these checkpile decks. I feel like I definitely could have used it in a lot of spots. I, I ended up just playing Sultai and I had Tireless Tracker as kind of my mirror breaker card advantage engine. And I think that Tireless Tracker itself is very, very good. I think that there were some deck building errors that I made uh, where, you know, I would run out of like a fetchable land a little bit too early, or I would play Tireless Tracker with a fetch land, get two clues, have a die to removal spell, essentially end up like plus three cards on the, on the exchange or plus two cards and not really be able to convert that into anything because I didn't have enough like tireless trackers or Jaces to keep that engine going. So find like more small ball advantagey stuff like uh, a Snapcaster Mage, Baleful Strix, whatever. But I didn't find anything that would like help actually continue putting the game away. So that's something that I need to work on. Mm, And do you have any thoughts as to maybe what you could use to serve as that bridge from one tireless tracker to the next threat? There are a few different things. I mean... the thing that brought me around to Tireless Tracker initially is that it is a card advantage card. I wanted something that was good against like him to Turok, basically, and like all of these these stupid grindy elements. And I wanted something that could not be pyroblasted because right. that's a huge deal. Right. Like Jace used to be like the, right. the ultimate breaker, but now it just doesn't matter because of all the, the random like, you know, lightning bolts and K commands and people are going to have like Baleful Strixes and Snapcasters in play and stuff like Jace is not safe. Right. But but tireless tracker, even if it does die, you are gaining at least one, maybe two clues, right? And hopefully that uh, just creates like this chain of card drawing where like you just keep going through your deck and eventually find some way to to put them away. So it could just be something as simple as like playing two copies of Unearth. Yeah, uh, you've talked about that card a lot in the context of Legacy. I'm interested to see what it can do. What's your opinion on Liliana, The Last Hope? Do you think that's a, a quality legacy card? I know it's seen more and more play. I've been impressed with it in these kind of mid-rangey decks so far. 
it's good. It picks off all the random stuff and especially Baleful Strix, but like the format has been warped around Baleful Strix to the point where you basically just don't see Tarmogoyf anymore. So he right. had three copies in his sideboard and because you have Baleful Strix, you just like don't play a lot of ways to kill big creatures. But if you have, if you right. have Tarmogoyf and something like Liliana, the last hope, like some way to incidentally make it so Baleful Strix does not just, you know, get like the, the biggest beating of a trade from your Tarmogoyf, then, then you're in a good spot because people are not ready for Tarmogoyf, assuming that their Strixes are going to die. So that could be a way to do it where instead of just like keep drawing cards, you just play some threat that they can't kill. Right. Well, that makes sense. Uh, uh, green Green Sun Zenith is another way to do it. Uh, Jim Davis experimented with that in Leovold with Chrome Mox. And I don't know how far I would go down that train, um, but it was definitely something that I was writing up in my notebook where it's just like your, your threat density is always insane when you have Green Sun Zenith, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And then one thing I saw on Magic Online recently was a person who was just playing Deep Analysis in their deck. God, I love that so much. Yeah. The old Deep Analysis. Yeah, so now it's like, okay, I'm playing Deep Analysis, probably Liliana of the Veil, maybe Collective Brutality, which is already a fine card. Uh, Maybe you play Grim Flayer, but I don't really like that. And it's just like, if they him you and you discard Deep Analysis, game over. Are we getting close where we're back to the point that life totals don't matter? I know that was a, a stage of legacy a little while ago where it was just like board advantage is all that matters if you're doing damage. It, it, it doesn't matter how low you've gone to do it because you're talking about Tarmogoyf in these contexts where you've dealt with Baleful Strix. I wonder about something like Death Shadow as opposed to Tarmogoyf. No, life life does matter because Bolt Snap Bolt still exists. Okay. The thing is, okay. is, is that they don't have the capability of like actually turning the corner as quickly as you would expect even from like a modern deck which is kind of mm. weird, but just like they, they don't have the same amount of damage output, but like your life total is still in danger. It's just generally like, you know, modern, like the Snapcaster is a card that will like sit in their hand until they get, have like the perfect moment to use it. Legacy, you'll, if you, if, if you're not using your mana on a turn, like you will just Snapcaster a ponder, right? Sure. So sure. you generally end up like using it a little bit more, but there's still like the danger of just like brainstorm, see three new cards, like two of them are lightning bolts or whatever. So I, I don't like the idea of death shadow because you're not really getting a huge return on it. Like death shadow berserk gets over baleful Strix, but it's like, it's just too much to set up. And there's not, not a lot of ways to gain raw cards in the death shadow deck. So like that works in modern, but it doesn't really work in legacy when people have better ways to trade with your stuff and you kind of need force of will. You just end up, gotcha. end up down on resources. Now, Death Shadow with deep analysis, I don't know. That might be a thing. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Yeah, we we started 3-0. We finished 4-3. If I could tune my deck a little bit, tune your sideboard plans, have Todd play something completely different, just like Valakut or whatever, I, I would have liked our spot yeah. a lot better. Yeah, I, I loved Valakut going into this weekend, but I just don't know enough about the archetype. Really, all we needed was more time. That's going to be my excuse for this tournament. We didn't have enough time. We would have cracked it given, you know, just a couple more days, a little bit of focus on the formats we would have gotten there, uh, but it wasn't meant to be. I don't know. Maybe we'll get another chance in the future to bring back the, uh, what were we calling our, our team? Oh, the the game Toddcast. Yeah, that's maybe one of my favorite team names of all time. <laughs> so maybe the game Toddcast will ride again. We'll We'll see if we ever get the band back together. I don't know, man. You'll be out in Seattle. Uh, there is a team tournament in Vancouver at the end of the year, and Jeff Fung 
wanted me or maybe Cedric wanted to team. I don't know. I got I got some people who wanted to team with me for that thing. So I, I can't remember if it's limited or constructed though. But either way. That'll be exciting. My my favorite city in North America is Vancouver. I'll be super close. So definitely looking forward to that tournament. A lot of a lot of good Pacific Northwest tournaments coming up the end of this year, I noticed. So that's really exciting stuff. Yeah, I mean you generally get like a, a Portland and a Vancouver per year and then every other year is a seattle or something so it's not that bad nice so yeah we'll we'll try and figure out what's going on for that and then we'll try and rectify our mistakes other than that i mean we could talk about magic online real quick there was a standard mox did you learn anything from this i learned that magic online is in a very different spot than the real world i guess (laughs) i mean these results kind of don't line up with a lot of what we're seeing elsewhere um, I mean, red, black still on top, you know, nothing super surprising there. A lot of green decks though on magic online, uh, a lot more than you see elsewhere and a little bit of the scarab God here and there. A little uh, bit. Interesting, interesting to see the scarab God pop back up, but you know, we always said he might come back around. Yeah. So, seeing, seeing Glintsley siphoner in a lot of sideboards and uh, mono red is kind of making a comeback too. Yep. Yeah. And you know, Makes sense. Cyclical metagame, like we've talked about all along. I, I'm not surprised to see these decks get another shot at it. So, yeah, I don't know that I have huge takeaways from the mocks. You know, my my attention was kind of torn between three different formats this week, thinking about a lot of stuff. I will say that there's still so many blue-white decks playing Torrential Gear Hulk. Just, just please stop. Don't do that to yourself. You don't need it. Just give it up. It's safe, I promise. Just let it go. I think it's a thing that you might need more in real life than online, but... To close games, right? In a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. You didn't have an issue with that, though. I was very happy. I was very pleased. I I told you, if I I think to play fast, I'm capable of it. The problem is I often forget to play fast over the course of a tournament and just like sit there for way too long thinking about things. But it was very much at the forefront of my mind. And uh, yeah, no problem closing games in time. Definitely uh, cruise through with no issues. It is possible, uh, but you, you have to work on it, you know? Yes, you do. You do. You have to you have to devote some some mental capacity to it. And you know, I think you also occasionally have to be okay with spewing that absolutely perfect, clean, crisp play, at least on my part. Like I'm I'm just not going to nail it every time if I'm playing at a super, super high pace. I can play ninety-eight percent, but I might lose that two percent here and there. And and I try and only do it in spots where it's super unlikely to matter that's kind of my concession is i'll i'll play blazing fast when it would take an absolute miracle for me to relinquish control on the game right yeah so uh torrential gear hulk i guess is a thing that we would call training wheels although circling back to our earlier rant it is a card that can pressure argul's blood fast Yes, it is a way to close the game quickly. And and that may be what these decks need going forward. Um, but I'd be inclined to find some sideboard slots for the card. I, I really don't want to play it in game ones when people right. still have their braids and unlicensed disintegrations. That seems crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it also like it's very unlikely that you play against Bloodfast in game one anyway. And that's kind of exactly it's the clock and Bloodfast, the reasons that you would want creatures. And I like to some degree Planeswalkers, too, you know, but. I don't know. I see a lot of like, so red, black one, you know, went eight Oh, but it's like the more aggressive version. And then you see the mid range versions that are kind of like littered in the six and two area and a lot of green decks that are floating around at seven and one. So that's kind of what it looks like to me is that like green is kind of making a comeback here. 
Yeah, well, you also said there's a lot of mono red, right? And more aggressive red black decks. That makes perfect sense. That's exactly what you'd expect their response to be. So, Yeah, so green might be on top for this coming weekend, at least for the highly advanced Magic Online metagame. Could be. I still think for like local PPTQs and things of that nature where people are still kind of getting their bearings and maybe just copying uh, deck lists that they find online and stuff that you should just play a very solid deck and not try and over metagame. Right. The PPTQ metagame is almost impossible to metagame. I mean, you're more, you'll have more success if you just know your local people and what they're inclined to play. Like that's worth more than actually looking at broad trends. Yep. That is. Do we have a question? We ha- we do have a question. We have a cool question this week. Ooh, I think can, this is- can can we also say that the the person who gets selected for the question gets uh, two packages of the game podcast sleeves made from? Well, you you can certainly say that because you have boxes and boxes of game podcast sleeves in your possession right now. So I don't I, have I, them. I'm still not home. Oh, that's right. That's right. You're still traveling the globe. Okay, but there are boxes and boxes of game podcast sleeves under your general dominion. Yes. And now we're going to be giving them out to whoever's question gets chosen every single week. I mean, this is one of the two spots you can get these game podcast sleeves right now. You can have the question that gets chosen, or you can be a Patreon of the game podcast and, you know, always giving shout outs to all of our Patreons. Thank you guys so much. Closing in on that stretch goal of an extra podcast every month. Like I would be surprised if we don't hit it by the time this episode uh, is is out in the wild. And ooh, okay, I was gonna say definitely by next week, definitely before the pro tour happens. Yeah, it's it's coming real soon, and that's exciting. We'll be able to start making some more content, and we're already thinking about future stretch goals. We had some some really great conversations this week about the future of this endeavor, and. This is not the ceiling. You're going to see a lot more cool stuff from the game podcast. That's for sure. Oh yeah. We have, we have hella ideas. I guess my one regret from the weekend was not just riding back with you to Albany and just talking to you for seven hours. Yeah. We would have had a lot of stuff on our plate to take care of. I feel like we already have so much that we've, uh, we've identified and discussed. So maybe it's good that we, we tempered it a little bit because we just be overwhelmed with ideas and endeavors right now. And let's, let's nail these few we have gestating right now. And then we'll, I'm sure we'll have plenty of long car rides in the future to get to that next set of ideas. Cause like I said, the game podcast isn't stopping. Things are just going to keep getting bigger. That is true. So first things first, I got to get through this pro tour. Yep. Yep. And then return to real life and maybe actually, you know, put some of this stuff into motion. We'll see. But yeah, your question gets selected. Uh, We will mail you out two packages of 50 of the game podcast sleeves made by Legion Supplies. And they are nice matte sleeves and they are likely great. I haven't actually had them in my hands, but (laughs) neither have I. We did use Legion sleeves last week. Yeah, the Legion sleeves we did have were super high quality. I can say that. And I'm sure these are exactly the same quality and, and super awesome. So I can't wait to get them out to people. And the first recipient of the game podcast sleeves through the question asking process is going to be Aaron Parsons. So props to you, Aaron Parsons. Aaron asks, well, he states, so last week on the MTG Grindcast podcast, They gave huge props to you guys. And Chris even said that the game podcast was an inspiration for their podcast. So my question is who in the MTG community inspires you past or present, be it content creation, play styles, et cetera. So you want to take that first? Uh, man. Okay. So I, 
<laughs> this is kind of blindsiding me. I feel like I'm going to give a crappy answer because I'm not not like going through and thinking of like literally everyone. I can I can give some good anecdotes. And I also met Chris in Birmingham and had like a really sweet discussion with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, yes. I, I think their podcast is great. I mean, you hear people in our Discord mention it all the time. It's one of their go-to sources for MTG info. So definitely happy to give them a shout out here. You know, we love our competition. We're not we're not bitter rivals with anyone who's out there making podcasts. We just want to support great magic content, and MTG Grindcast is definitely make that. So go give them a listen too. Well, also this weekend in Toronto, I was talking to Huey, and I told him that he should make a Peach Garden Oath podcast. So like, yeah, I'm I am not upset about competition. Like. I feel like if that happened, just we would lose half of our listener base, but it would be okay because magic would be better. No, there's a lot of hours in the week. There'll be time for people to listen to the Peach Garden Note. There'll be time for them to listen to MTG Grindcast, and there'll be time for them to listen to us. I'm sure there's room for everyone here. Word. Uh, Collins Mullen is the the future, by the way. Yeah, we've talked uh, a bit in private about your your respect for him and how much he's doing, you know, in the magic scene and his deck building ability. And, you know, this isn't just lip service to the podcast. We definitely have chatted about your opinion of him and very high up on your list, I know. Yep. Anyway, uh, so when when I was when I was just a wee lad and I was just starting out, uh, I was reading some articles on Brain Burst and I don't know. I played a lot of control decks. I was playing like Nether Go and then eventually Psychotog and then Extended rolled around and I was playing this deck called ODD, which stood for Operation Dumbo Drop. And it was like this Bant nonsense control deck with Gaia's Blessing and Call of the Herd. Oh, I love it. Tommy Wallamese used to get second at uh, one of the old PTs. I forget which one, but it was like the one that Kai beat him in the finals by peeling a Morphling. And <clears throat> the first time I ever flew to a Grand Prix was a GP in Las Vegas in like 2002 and it was extended. And I remember like emailing Tommy and just like asking him some questions and like he responded and like, we just had like a good conversation about his deck. And this is like a dude who just came off getting second at a PT, you know? And it's just like, man, that is awesome. It was just like so cool to me. And then I don't know, just reading like a lot of the stories from various people like Kai is a person who stands out to me as someone who is just like, yo, these are the facts, right? Like we played enough magic. We figured out that like, this was the truth. This is what people are going to do. This is how we approached it. And and this is how we won the tournament basically. And it's just like that, that kind of like inspires me and my process. Right. And it's just like, Oh, if I put in the work, I can maybe not, you know, get to Kai's level or whatever, but you know, like I, I can see myself getting better and doing better, right? And then mm-hmm. uh, I, I would be remiss if I did not mention Patrick Chapin because not only did he get me into writing and has just like shaped my career in a lot of different ways, like he's also just like taught me a lot about how to reach an audience and how, like how to reach a broader audience, right? Like. And not even just through like telling me what to do, but it's just like by reading his stuff. I don't know. I feel like I I would certainly not be here today if it were not for him specifically. And certainly just like all the articles I read when I was a kid in high school, like going to the library during lunch and like printing out all the like Mind Ripper and Dojo articles that I could get my hands on. So just I've been inspired by a lot of people. Yeah, I I think that's the tough thing about this question, right? Is there's so many people you want to mention as inspirations, but Chapin's a great one and definitely applies to me as well. I remember when I first started getting into competitive magic, I very 
quickly identified his articles as ones that I should be paying very close attention to. I was just like, this guy knows what he's talking about, and this should be my primary source of information. And actually, it was really cool at my first ever Pro Tour, Pro Tour Amsterdam. I was just walking down the street randomly one day and ended up walking next to Patrick and we had never met before. And I did that weird thing where I just approached him on the street and I I thanked him for all of his content. And I told him I felt like I wouldn't be in Amsterdam if not for him. I felt like he taught me competitive magic. So we had a cool talk on the way to the the site. And that's something that's always, always stuck with me, you know, him being very gracious with his time and his content just means so much to me. So I think that's a great name. You know, there's there's so many people. Mike Flores comes to mind as someone who, you know, his early articles on Thury really opened my eyes to a new way to think about the game and also his approach to content creation. You know, Mike was one of the first podcasters out there. Uh, I used to listen to his his cast with BDM. I think that's the first, probably the first podcast I ever listened to was a Mike Flores podcast. Dude, um, that that might also be true for me. Yeah. Yep. Very influential on on the podcasting game. And obviously that's something, you know, we kind of owe him thanks right now because we're out here making a a podcast every week and maybe we wouldn't be doing that if not for him. So yeah, there's so many people I want to name right now. It's it's really hard to narrow this down. I'll I'll shout out KYT too. KYT is another person who, you know, really pushed the podcast game forward and he's so important to his community. You know, he's such a big part of magic in Canada that I can't imagine Canadian magic without him. And whenever I meet someone from Canada, I always ask them if they know KYT, kind of like half joking. No one has ever said no to me. <laughs> Literally everyone's just like, yeah, I know KYT. So, uh, you know, another guy who, who definitely inspires me a lot. And I could honestly go on forever. I think magic players are, are such great people on the whole. And there's so many interesting stories and interesting people and, you know, people who have pushed me to be. Uh, a better and more thoughtful person in the community. So, so props to everyone out there making content, uh, writing, and just being a part of the community. It's definitely uh, overall the entire community inspires me all the time. I, I definitely don't know where my life would be without magic. So, all of magic gets gets to be the answer to this question. That's going to be my cop out answer. Word. One thing I will say about KYT is that. I don't know the exact stats on this. It's like I've been on a lot of podcasts and I've been asked to do interviews and stuff, but he was basically he was definitely the first and uh, one of the only people to like repeatedly ask me to keep coming on his shows like whatever he was doing. And Mm -hmm. I enjoyed doing it. And I think that being on his show just various times like made me better at it, too. So like I, I definitely agree with you that like you know, without a lot of these people, like we would not be here doing what we're doing now. And it's just like maybe doing uh, all the the stuff with KYT and Mana Deprived and everything was what made me feel okay. Like, oh, hey, I can do this podcast thing, you know, because like I had the practice and I've done it before and people liked it. Right. I don't I don't necessarily know that I would have gone out on my own and tried to start something without having that under my belt. Right. And also you can point to that as kind of the genesis of you and I in a lot of ways. Like we met outside of that context, but some of our first conversations definitely are in the podcast context with either the first podcast I did for KYT or First Strike, you know, you coming on as a guest prior to me coming and doing this. So, you know, KYT brings everyone together. He brings together all of Canada as well as us. So props to him. Hell yeah. That's game.
Good luck. <laughs>